Dear God, your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We know that. We come to your word now. But human dynamics being the way they are, dear Father, please, would you make sure that the word we hear from Holy Scripture is one we really hear. Cut out the interference. No go-betweens. May the mighty Spirit of Christ work directly with our minds. Impress us. Show us the way. And then give us the grace and the courage to follow the way Jesus leads. We pray in His name. Amen. Does this number surprise you? Gallup survey done recently. They discovered that roughly four out of ten Americans, that would be about uh, 40%, 40% of America describes itself as evangelical and born again. 40%. That leaves mainline Christians and Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and agnostics for the rest. 40% of the American demographic pie, evangelicals. In fact, that statistic, I believe, is significant enough. I would like you to take your new study guide that's in your worship bulletin this morning and let's get that statistic down. Lock it into our minds as we begin our study today. Those of you watching on television... If you will go to our website, I'll put the uh, web address there on the screen, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to our website. You can, you can actually follow this study guide with us right now. You click on to America Adrift, the impending moral Armageddon, part three. You click on that, you will have the identical study guide. Those of you who came today and several of you came with one bulletin, I want to make sure you get some of these uh, com- Provocative quotations. Hold your hand up. Just uh, be patient. The ushers will come to you and you will have the study guide as well. Take your study guide out. Let's fill out. Let's get that statistic locked in right here at the beginning. Would you write it down, please? Four out of ten. Four out of ten Americans today consider themselves, right in the word, you can put it in quotation marks, evangelicals or born-again Christians. Four out of ten. You know what, I hope that if uh, Gallup had called you one evening uh, recently or had called me and they had issued that uh, same query, do you consider yourself a born-again evangelical, uh, uh, an evangelical Christian? I hope you and I would have answered yes. Wouldn't we have? Yeah, we would have answered yes, of course. I want to show you just within uh, the last month, U.S. News and World Report came out with this cover story. Can you see it? The new evangelicals of America. If you look down there, it's on the screen for you, the, the uh, small type. Their bold take on Christianity is changing America. Now, you, you and I say, well, of course, I hope we're changing America for the better. Listen to Alan Wolf, sociologist at Boston University, in his latest book, The Transformation of American Religion. In this book, he argues, put the words up on the screen, he argues that many characteristics of the evangelical style have permeated other faith traditions in America, including Roman Catholicism and Judaism. Everybody's being affected by this 40% slice of the American pie. Now, Alan Wolf goes on to note the characteristics that are affecting the wider uh, public. Three ways evangelicals are affecting, influencing. Here they are. Number one, 
Evangelicals are, have a strongly personalist and therapeutic tendency or tendencies. Personalists, we're very, we're, very, we're very personal in our religion. Finding a forever friendship with God. Have you ever heard that? Why? Because we want to focus in on the personal relationship. Very therapeutic. In fact, we have two members of our small group, and they just went down to Ohio. A bunch of you went down to Ohio last week, and you attended a prayer conference that merged psychology and praying. And you came back and said, wow, look what happens when prayer and psychology are matched. We're very much into this personalist therapeutic approach. Number two, Alan Wolf notes, evangelicals bring a market-savvy to expanding or growing the flock or the church. I was just down at Willow Creek uh, four days ago at a conference. I'm telling you what, you want to talk about market savvy. It's in place. Alan Wolf says actually there are three ways evangelicals are affecting America. And here comes number three. They bring to America a certain theological fuzziness. And it's that theological fuzziness that I must confess concerns me this morning, especially when you combine that theological fuzziness with a new post-September 11 consciousness about who we evangelicals think we are as a nation. Take a look at this. Post-September 11, particularly since then, all right, U.S. News and World Report, particularly since September 11, evangelical notions about God's special covenant with the American people, have contributed to a quasi-religious nationalism that casts America as the chosen nation engaged in a righteous struggle with evil, end quote. Tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, go on to any religious radio, uh, a talk radio today, and you will hear it bandied about without apology. Hey, we are America. We are God's chosen. Well, I need to declare today that I do not believe this nation is God's chosen people. No, no, don't get me wrong. I believe that God has, wow, supernaturally, abundantly blessed America. In fact, on, in my apocalypse, on the page for Revelation 13, I've written in a one-sentence quotation. And I wanted to make sure you have it so it's in your study guide. You have to put in two words to make the quotation complete. Here's what, re- here's what it reads there on my Revelation 13 page. The Lord has done more for the United States than for any other country upon which the sun shines. God has blessed this nation. We have a hundred nations at Andrews University. You've all come here for your education. God has blessed America. You know why? I'll tell you why. For a most prophetic and apocalyptic reason, I believe. Namely, to first provide a haven and then provide a home for God's final global appeal to human civilization. I need a safe place. A base. But the question this morning is, I wonder how long America will remain a safe haven for God's final mission. Is evangelical America on a collision course with prophecy? You see, what happens when this theological fuzziness, Alan Wolf, and that post-September 11 special covenant nationalism, what happens when these two collide? Please open your Bible with me this morning. To a text I am quite certain was not originally intended to describe the United States of America. I came across this, I don't know, five, six, seven weeks. I don't know. Recently, I came across these words. And since then, I have brooded on Ezekiel's prediction. I realize that the words are intended to describe Israel. But as I I consider this beloved nation of mine, 
It occurs to me that maybe we come into the crosshairs of this biblical prophecy. Take a look. Open your Bible, please, to Ezekiel. In fact, you need to fill this in in your study guide. Make sure you write in Ezekiel. You have the actual reference there, but not the name of the book. Ezekiel chapter 7. Open your Bible, please, to Ezekiel chapter 7. I'd like you to kind of uh, ponder and brood on this with me for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 7. I'll be reading today in the New International Version. Ezekiel chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 25. I'm thinking of post September 11, America. When terror comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Hmm. When terror comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Calamity upon calamity will come, and rumor upon rumor, they will try to get a vision from the prophet. The teaching of the law by the priest will be lost. Terror, then calamity and rumor. The teaching of the law is lost. Verse 27, the king... The leader will mourn. The prince will be clothed with despair. And the hands of the people of the land will tremble. Are we under orange? Are we, is, it, is it yellow or orange or red? What color are we under? The hands of the people will tremble. God speaks, I will deal with them according to their conduct. And by their own standards, I will judge them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? When terror comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Calamity, calamity, rumor upon rumor. And the teaching of the law will be lost. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, you can put the words together. Terror, calamity, rumor, abandoned law and judgment. The question is, are they all linked together for America as well? Hmm? When terror comes, the teaching of the law will be lost. Has the teaching of the law been lost? In America today, hmm? on November 13, 2003, a judicial ethics panel in the state of Alabama removed Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Roy Moore, you see him on the screen, removed him from his seat on the state's high court. The nine-member panel, known as the Alabama Court of the Judiciary, found Chief Justice Moore guilty of six violations of the canon of judicial ethics. Number one, the judge failed to respect and comply with the law. Number two, he failed to uphold the integrity and independence of the judiciary. Number three, he failed to observe high standards of conduct. Number four, he failed to avoid impropriety or the appearance of impropriety. Number five, he failed to conduct himself in a manner promoting public confidence in the impartiality of the judiciary. And finally, number six, he failed to avoid conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice so as to bring the judiciary into disrepute. Good grief, you exclaim. What is the problem with this judge? He must have committed adultery with one of his court interns. He did not. Chief Justice Roy Moore was removed from his elected office for refusing to obey a federal judge's order to remove a 5,280-pound granite carving of the Ten Commandments. You see it there on the screen. Remove that from the foyer of the Alabama Judicial Building where Chief Justice Moore, stealthily under the cover of darkness, had first placed that monument. But you may be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, how could, how could displaying the Ten Commandments be such a heinous crime or an egregious violation? Aren't the Ten Commandments the basis of all moral law? 
Well, I think, I think it could be argued that in fact they are. And haven't we already, Dwight, spent two Sabbaths decrying the stunning assault on the moral law in America today? We have. And don't the Ten Commandments appear in Moses' hands in the U.S. Supreme Court freeze? And aren't they carved into the, the, the uh, Supreme Court chamber doors? And don't the Ten Commandments appear in the National Archives? And doesn't Moses stand in the House of Representatives chamber looking upon all our politicians? Yes, yes, yes. Along with Hammurabi and other founders of what became modern law. Then what's so wrong with Chief Justice Roy Moore's Ten Commandments in Alabama? What's wrong with that? I cannot imagine a thinking Christian or Adventist not asking that question. The answer is, by the way, would you put this in your study guide, please? The answer to the question, what's wrong with Chief Justice Moore's Ten Commandments? The answer is one word, nothing. Right in nothing. There is nothing wrong at all with the Ten Commandments. And that's the whole point. Chief Justice Moore was not removed from office, write this in please, because of the Ten Commandments. No, 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 no. Now you wouldn't think so listening to the now rather vociferous evangelical leadership voices that have been raised in defense of, of Judge Moore and his Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are not what is on trial in the state of Alabama or in the courts of the United States. We must get that point clear. Contrary to all the rallies, all the prayer vigils, all the Save the Commandments caravans that moved through the South, wound their way through the South and ended up at the nation's capital. All of that, by the way, generating more heat than light. But contrary to all of that, God's Ten Commandments are not what is on trial in our secular courts. And those who are suggesting so have fallen for a subterfuge. We as Adventist Christians can't, must not fall for the same. The reality is that Chief Justice Roy Moore was removed by his peers from the bench for refusing to obey the very courts and laws he as judge had been elected to serve. These are the words of I'll put it on the screen for you. Chief Judge William Thompson. He was the head of the ethics panel that removed Roy Moore. In fact, it's in the study guide. You need to fill in one word here. This is uh, Judge Thompson. In defying the court order, the Chief Justice, that would be Moore, placed himself above the, would you write it in please, above the law. Christian evangelical judges are not above the law. Which is precisely the point of this political cartoon that appeared a few weeks ago. You see Chief Judge Roy Moore standing beside Osama bin Laden. And Judge Moore says, I'm above the law because of my religious beliefs. And bin Laden quips back, me too. Now it's a poignant point. It's a pokey point. But there is no religion. The cartoonist's point is clear. There is no religion. There is no judge above the law of this land. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution. I hope you have this one memorized. Congress, it's on the screen for you. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the what? The free exercise thereof. Many Americans, many of us Americans who cherish the principle of the separation between church and state Realize the First Amendment is what preserves that separation. But last October, Judge Moore was quoted, publicly quoted, as saying these words. Judge Moore, speaking, the idea of a wall of separation between church and state is a fable. No phrase is more widely used or widely abused, end quote. 
Well, fortunately for you and me and other religious minorities, ladies and gentlemen, the federal court disagreed with Judge Moore. And by the way, so did the Supreme Court, which refused to hear his appeal. Nathan Higgs from Atlanta, who is director for public affairs and religious liberty, has succinctly summarized. This is the most concise summarization of this particular legal issue I've come across. I want you to read these words. We'll put them on the screen. Nathan Higgs. Whenever the government is involved in endorsing one religion above another, it relegates all other religions as inferior. Okay, let's just just hit the pause button in that quote for a moment. Let's just say that Chief Justice Moore is succeeded by a Jewish, an American Jewish judge who said, I don't want the Ten Commandments. I want the Star of David in the foyer of my courthouse. You see, where do you stop this? Where does it go? Nathan Higgs is making a powerful point. Whenever the government is involved in endorsing one religion above another, and that's what it is when it appears in a government building, it relegates all other religions as inferior. The results are religious persecution of those who do not accept the government's version of religion. An endorsement may be the commandments now or today, but once the precedence has been established, should we accept the Quran? How about the Veda for the Hindus? How about the Wiccans? Those would be the occult, the witches. Later, history has proven repeatedly, Nathan Higgs writes, that the freedom of conscience cannot coexist in the ambience of a state-supported religion. Hence, the best role for government to play is to stay out of religion. Last line, Christianity espouses a personal loving God, not a federal legal God. End quote. That's pretty punchy, isn't it? And so Judge Moore was fired and his Ten Commandments were removed. But many in, in evangelical America have gone ballistic. And no wonder when you have the likes of James Dobson weighing in on in defense of Roy Moore to be expected. This last fall, I received from Focus on the Family a CD recording of Dr. Dobson's address. Let me put the picture of that moment. It's the day after the federal court removed the Ten Commandments. It's a hot August day. He flew into Montgomery, Alabama. You see the picture. 2,000 evangelical Christians were rallying on the steps of the Alabama courthouse where that monument had once stood. Now, I need to say this. I have long admired James Dobson for his unrelenting advocacy of the family and marriage and the moral values of Scripture. This man has done more, perhaps, than anyone to protect the American family. However, in this speech, on that 100-degree August noonday, James Dobson throws down the gauntlet against what he calls, and these are his words. I have two transcripts of the speech and I have the actual recording. What he calls the American leftist judiciary. Now, those are strong words. And then he makes a most startling statement in which he declares that the Ten Commandments are not what this is all about. Let's put his words up on the screen. You have them. In fact, you have to fill this in in order to, for your quotation to be complete. Follow along in your study guide. For the past weeks, this is Dr. Dobson addressing those 2,000. I've been watching the developing story in Alabama. I've heard the various news media as they've described this event in Montgomery. They've totally missed the point. The media have not understood the issue at all. And that's why I came here to say to you, it is not about the, write it in, Ten Commandments. Whoa. It's about everything else, he goes on. It is most about an unelected, unaccountable, arrogant, 
imperious judiciary that is appointed for life and is determined to make all of us dance to their music, end quote. Whoa. And then, Dr. Dobson went on to name one of the Supreme Court justices, whom I will not name, and labeled him, quote, one of the most dangerous men in this country, end quote. And the crowd erupted, evangelical Christians erupted in cheers and applause. A leftist judiciary, a battle against judicial tyranny, which was at the beginning of his speech, and then one of the most dangerous men in the country. I have never heard Dr. Dobson so agitated. But I must challenge our good doctor friend today, Dr. Dobson. Do you really believe that the, Ten, that the Ten Commandments are not what this is all about? Could it be, dear sir, that in the end, they are precisely what this is all about? Huh? Because I tell you what, you don't have to be a psychologist. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to even be a Christian. Why, you can be an atheist. All you have to do is to be able to read. And once you read the Decalogue, you quickly discover. Would you write this in, please, into your study guide? Anybody who reads can quickly discover that the Ten Commandments, write in the word ten, the Ten Commandments evangelical America is clamoring to defend are in actuality the Nine Commandments that evangelical America is willing to obey. I mean, all of this hue and cry and, and clamor in defense of the Ten Commandments notwithstanding. I predict that if we put our arm around Judge Roy Moore and took him aside and asked him, now Judge Moore, we would discover that in fact, he would have to admit, really, it's just nine of the ten that are carved in granite. Now, it's true. Judge Moore made certain that all ten were carved into that two and a half ton granite monument. But you know what he did? Bless his soul. He condensed them. My friend Lincoln Steed calls it an executive summary. Isn't there some line in Scripture about at the end of the Bible, if you take away one word? Well, anyway, he's taken a bunch of words away. So that he ends up, this is Judge Moore's fourth commandment. This is how it reads. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, period. He edited out. The part he doesn't practice. For in, for the seventh day, would you write that in your study guide, please? For the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. By the way, those words were written with God's finger on granite long before this executive summary. The seventh day. Well, we don't want to put that part in granite now, do we? A nice, clean edit and the secular press and the secular public have never figured it out. They will one day. Trust me, they will figure it out. But now, it's gone. You see, it's the Achilles heel of evangelical America. Only now it's the terrible vulnerability that is beginning to reveal itself. One of these days, somebody is going to figure it out. And let's not be too hard on Judge Roy, uh, Judge. Roy Moore, since he is only following the example of all the rest of the leaders of evangelical America, which is why this is also their Achilles heel. Because what kind of moral leadership, just, just 
we wrestle with this. What kind of moral leadership can you possibly bring to this nation? Would you jot this down, please? When the public discovers that the very law you are defending, you are disobeying. All this fuss and ruckus in front of the secular press. Dr. Dobson, how can you call for the removal of a leftist judiciary when you yourself have left out the very heart of the Ten Commandments you are defending? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Say it with me. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Ladies and gentlemen, the unedited fourth commandment. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. The one commandment that evangelical America has chosen to forget begins with the word, remember. The leaders of evangelical America, God bless them, trying so hard to have the Ten Commandments carved in granite for all the public to see, but hiding from the same public that they have chosen to follow only nine of those ten. I mean, what kind of moral authority does a leader possess when he chooses to disregard the very law he is attempting to defend? Until we as Christians, and I'm speaking to all of us now, until we as Christians practice what we preach, how can we possibly think that a secular nation, a secular press, and a godless public would ever find compelling moral authority in our empty moral platitudes? Why should I follow you? You don't follow what you teach. You don't follow what you preach. The Achilles heel of evangelical America, what one day will eventually bring it down and will bring this nation down around it, will be the edited and disregarded fourth commandment. And you don't have to take my word for it. It is the word of Christ to evangelical America today. Turn in your Bible, please, to Mark, the Gospel of St. Mark, the words of Jesus. He is the Lord of evangelicals. Let us consider the word of the Lord to evangelicals. Mark chapter 7, please. Mark chapter 7. You have to write, I think, the reference in. So write in 7 and then the verses 6 through 9. Mark 7, 6 through 9. Jesus is speaking here. Verse 6, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Verse 9, and Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandment of God in order to observe your own tradition. Nice edit job, 
judge more? You have a fine way of setting aside the commandment of God in order to observe your own tradition. Look at verse 7 in the New King James Version. Jesus says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Achilles heel of evangelical America. The rejection of God's fourth commandment in favor of convenience. The convenience of an unbiblical tradition. Even the moral authority of Christianity today, the most influential evangelical journal in the nation, has been threatened. Two months ago, this appeared on their editorial page, written by their editors, under the title, Take Back Your Sabbath. And they are speaking of Sunday observance. The line is in your study guide. Our churches and families need to return, the editors wrote, need to return to a Sabbath consciousness that can provide a platform for countercultural witness. End quote. An appeal for a countercultural witness? The only way God's Sabbath will truly be endowed with countercultural witness is when it is celebrated. Would you write this down, please? When it is celebrated on God's very countercultural day. Write in the word countercultural. The seventh day. To call for a countercultural Sabbath observance while accommodating secular culture and church tradition by observing it on convenient Sunday, thus rejecting the seventh day specificity of the fourth commandment can hardly be described. Whoa, how countercultural. Sadly, it is too much, too much of this culture. The Achilles heel of evangelical America. That will eventually bring down this proud and mighty nation. The very collapse that our evangelical leaders are warning against. Could it be they are inadvertently precipitating it by their own rejection of one of God's commandments. And then teaching their followers to go and do likewise. Two weeks ago, I shared a sentence from a century ago. I put it on the screen for you. National apostasy will be followed by national ruin. End quote. Are we supposed to conclude then that the law somehow is going to save us? Of course the law can't save us. The law can't save us as a nation. The law can't save us as a people. The law can't even save us as as individuals. God saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That much is surely we're clear on. However, when God saves us, watch what He does. Last text, last text, Hebrews, New Testament there towards the end. Hebrews chapter 8. Let's take a look at the new covenant, huh? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Look what God does when He saves us. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. In fact, you know what? You'll have to scribble that into your study guide. Would you scribble that reference into your study guide? There are similar words in chapter 10, but put 8, verse 10. Just write it in there so you have this as well. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. God speaking, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Did you catch that, ladies and gentlemen? The call of God is not for the Ten Commandments to be in granite. It is for the Ten Commandments to be ingrained. Would you write that in, please? God isn't asking for the Ten Commandments to be in granite. His promise is that the Ten Commandments 
through His salvation, might become ingrained. And by the way, who does the ingraining? You have God's Word on it. I will write my laws. I will put my laws in your mind. I will write them upon your heart. Not in granite. No, 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 no. Not in granite, but ingrained. Just like Joseph. By the way, Joseph lived, Joseph lived before the law ever got written into granite. But Joseph, it must have been, it must be that when you're friends of God, it just gets onto your heart because Joseph looked into the face of a woman who was asking him to break the seventh commandment. And Joseph looked straight into Mrs. Potiphar and he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I can't break the seventh commandment. He didn't know it was the seventh commandment, but it was ingrained, not in granite, just like Joseph, just like Daniel, by the way. You know what? The enemies of Daniel there in Daniel chapter 6 say, hey, we've got to find a way to take this guy down. The only way we can get at him is through his loyalty to the law of his God. That's the first commandment. God said, Daniel said, I don't care who's, whom I'm supposed to pray to. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Daniel opens up his door in front of his enemy and he prays to the living God. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Stand in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. He is livid with rage. And those three young adults look into his face and they announce, we cannot break the second commandment. O king, O king, we will not bow down and worship the image you have made. Not in granite for them. It's ingrained. Just like David, oh, Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Just like Paul, Paul who cries out, Romans 7, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. You know what? It's just like Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is in my heart. In granite? Nope. In grain, just like the 144,000, here are they who keep the commandments of God and hold on to the faith of Jesus. Not in granite, but ingrained, just like Jesus and every human being who has been close with Him in the course of human history. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to be in that circle. What do you say? I want to be in that circle, heart to heart. Write it on my heart, Jesus. You know what? When you and I go to the cross every morning and kneel at the foot of Calvary and we watch the lawgiver become our life giver, we can pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, write your law. Please, I beg of you every morning. God, I don't know what I'm going to face today on this campus. I don't know what I'm going to face today in this community. But God, would you write your law upon my heart? I don't need it in granite. I need it ingrained. In the back of my Bible. I have a quotation. In fact, I wanted to make sure you have it, and so it's at the end of your study guide. Isn't this something? Let me read these words to you. Take a look at them. Put them on the screen. When the law of God is most derided and brought into the most contempt, then it is time for every true follower of Christ. Any true followers of Christ here? But of course, it is time then when the law is brought into contempt for those whose hearts have been given to God and who are fixed to obey God to stand unflinchingly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Last line, it is time to fight when champions are most needed, end quote. Hey, I want to be that champion. You want to be a champion for God, huh? Don't you?
I want God to write His law on my heart. Don't you? I want to defend God's law with all my heart. Don't you? Ah. Today we have an opportunity to make sure that like the federal judge who heard Judge Roy Moore's case, there will be judges in America sensitized to the liberty God made certain this nation would defend for yet a while longer. We can do that today. We're going to do it right now. Every judge in Berrien County, every lawyer in Berrien County, every politician, every mayor, every councilman, councilwoman, we want to send the most provocative liberty journal, religious liberty journal in the United States today. We're going to receive an offering right now. You know, I thank God for the wisdom of the American judiciary. By and large, do you want to influence thought leaders? Today's offering is our annual religious liberty offering. Everything you give will go to influencing America's brightest minds to defend the liberty that you and I cherish, that the First Amendment protects. Also in your bulletin, I believe there was a little insert that looks like this. I filled mine out in first service. I'm going to tear it off now and turn it in in second service. There's a place I wish today. Look, at a lot of times you sit through this hour. Ah, it's not a big deal. My friend, it's starting to become a very big deal. We need to be vigilant. And it's going to take sacrificial commitment. And so, look, at I, I, I can give... I can give 25, I can give 50, 100, five, whatever. Put a check mark, will you? Write your name down. You got a campus address? Just scribble it on. You say, I didn't come to pre- today, Dwight, prepared to give a penny. Fine. You just turn this in today. And sometime in the month of February, just put it in a little envelope and say, it's for religious liberty. It's to help defend the liberty of the law. Of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The ushers now are going to receive this offering. Thank you. Men and women, you may now receive the offering. And while they begin receiving it, I want to draw your attention to a hymn that I hope we will sing with fervor together. It's, it's hymn 304 in your hymnal. Faith of our fathers. I love this hymn. Faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear that glorious word, faith of our fathers, holy faith. We will be true to Thee till death. I'm going to put the Italian Alps as the background. The home of the Waldenses, who themselves were the defenders of God's law in the dark, dark ages. We have inherited their legacy. Give liberally today and sing with all your heart as we Commit to God the journey before us.